Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is Dr. Ellen Fernandez-Sacco for a conversation about her article, Bound to History, Leoncia LaSalle's Slave Narrative from Mocha, Puerto Rico, which was part of an interview back in 1945, by the historian Luis Diaz Sola. Now, he interviewed Miss LaSalle, a 112-year-old woman, and her 85-year-old daughter. Now, Dr. Fernandez-Saco is going to tell us about this article that she wrote based upon the slave narrative. And so she has some very interesting information to share with us. Now let me just tell you about Dr. Fernandez-Sacco. She is an independent scholar whose current work focuses on the genealogy and family history of people transitioning into freedom after 1870 in northwest Puerto Rico. Her work integrates the family history and genealogy of people of color, cultural and class-based differences. So she's going to tell us more about the account of what happened to Miss LaSalle during enslavement based upon this interview that historian Louis Diaz-Sola had with her. So let me just give a warm welcome to Dr. Fernandez-Sacco. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much, Bernice. I'm so happy to be here. I so, really appreciate this opportunity to talk about this topic. Oh, well, I'm really looking forward to hearing about this topic because, I mean, you're expanding our knowledge. And so tell us more about what does your article, Bound to History, cover? 
Um, well, the article is covering basically two large topics, and one of them is about the condition and the access to the archives that we can get to to uh, recover information about enslaved ancestors. And then the other part of it is to uh, work on Leoncia Lasage and her daughter Juana Rodriguez Lasage's um, slave narrative, and then kind of filling that out, that history with uh, their lives in this, in this small town in Northwest Puerto Rico. So when you mention, you know, their, about their lives, just tell us what did you pick up in the slave narrative about the lives of the mother and her daughter? Um, the, the account itself, it's an embedded account. By that I mean it, it's published within G.S. Folaire's book. So he, um, he takes the account down in 1945. And um, she relates, her, both her and her daughter relate the story about how, what the conditions were for their enslavement. And, um, and she, begins, she begins it the way a lot of uh, slave narratives begins, where she says, I was raised on the hacienda of Don Marcelino Lasage, way out in the countryside of Moca. And then she worked in Cain since she was very little. And she goes on to describe the, you know, meals, really scant meals, um, the kind of violence that she had to deal with the different kinds of situations that she was faced with as a, as a young woman uh, coming of age working on a plantation. Um, she talks about an experience of being sold uh, or actually being exchanged to, in satisfaction of a debt, which is how she is transferred to another uh, enslaver in, in Lares, Puerto Rico, which is an adjoining municipality. Uh, one thing that I'm really struck by is that when she tells us this kind of experience, that's very hard to track through paperwork then. You know, this, prop, this sounds like a very informal uh, exchange that happened with her. So um, she had been uh, coerced or, or raped both by the son of the plantation owner and had a daughter, and um, she speaks about that. She speaks to that in the condition of women being, of, of sexual exploitation happening. Um, and the kinds of situations that women would find themselves in trying to get support for them and their child. And, you know, she says that one thing she would have wanted was freedom for me and for my daughter and that he never gave me, which to me tells me that there's still uh, a chance that I may be able to find her uh, sedulous in the, in the, um, my current project, which is transcribing these uh, documents, which were used to, um, which were used in emancipation to inventory enslaved people so that the people who owned them would be indemnified for anywhere for 125 pesos a piece. So they would be getting something, whereas like the people who are coming out of slavery are um, faced with a whole host of difficulties. They, are, they don't have any kind of political rights for five years. They can't buy land. Um, they, don't, they don't work for any, they work for free for three years until they're declared officially free. Um, so there are a lot of really negative things. And her account doesn't really get into that. It's, it's very brief. But, it, but what it does, though, is, is that it counters uh, these other kind of really pernicious narratives that come around, that are told around slavery, where because the numbers in Puerto Rico aren't the numbers of Cuba or Brazil, um, people would argue that, oh, you know, it wasn't a bad situation. And in reality, there's, there's just as much violence and cruelty because violence is what you need to maintain in a slave system. And um, so then reading this, 
uh, account gives us, you know, it, it, it's a testimony. It speaks against the grain in terms of what some people might have tried to put forward in the past with some of the accounts that uh, Diaz Soler did. What he did was, was position this account against some earlier accounts from the 19th century to kind of say what was going on uh, and how this would, would, would speak against that. Um, the other importance of this for me is that this connects her account with the experiences of millions of other people. And in that, that doesn't make it isolated. And I think that that makes it something that we can all learn more about. Um, well, it does sound like it's something we can learn more about. Now, when you're trying, let's say you're, you're reading these narratives, what kind of primary sources uh, would you utilize to try to track what's going on with her or her enslavers? Um, well, it's, we've got basically three, uh, three different sources that we can depend on, which are the uh, parish records, the, um, the slave inventories. From, there's one from 1820s. There may be another later. I'm not sure. And, um, uh, and then Protocolos uh, Notariales, which are the notary documents, which... Uh, which are housed at the Archivo General de Puerto Rico, but there's a problem with those in that they're considered living documents. So they, they're, um, when you use them, you can only use them in very limited, limited situations. You know, you have to go and take each, each uh, page and copy it out by hand. It's not like they've opened up the access necessarily. One thing that really helped was uh, Carlos Encarnacion Navarro uh, out Eight years ago, about 10 years ago, he actually uh, published several of the protocolos from this early time period. And from that, I was able to extract information on various enslavers that were in the, in the region of, of Aguadilla, northwest Puerto Rico. So, so but this I is all familial. This is similar yeah. to the South in that, you know, we're dealing with families. You know, mm-hmm. it's a familial process. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, you know, you, you mentioned the difficulty as far as accessing the records. Have you found any records uh, on Family Search or any other online resources, or do you actually have to go to Puerto Rico to the archives and the notorial uh, archives to find some of these documents? Actually, right now, online is the best resource. They're, they're really... Um, there were a number of churches that did not agree to the microfilming of records uh, by family search. So there's also a kind of delayed uh, digitization project that the Sociedad de Puerto Ricanía de Genealogía, the SPG, is now working on, which is mm-hmm. getting those records and trying to get that digitized before, before they're lost. Uh, trying to get information, is, is, it's, a pretty, it's not the simplest process. Uh, so that's the other reason why I'm working on this transcription of these sedulas because the volume, uh, Ancestry has the 1872 Registro de Slavos, and it mm-hmm. says, you know, that it's 100% and it's on full free. But what they don't tell you is that 33 different municipalities don't have volume, that they don't have, uh, they don't have records that were turned into the volumes that are currently on there. But uh, some of that original information still survives so that I've been working on transcriptions of that. And it's, it's really enlightening because there's, um, you find a lot of ancestors on both sides who you may not have been aware of. 
being mm-hmm. involved in uh, trading people or, or being enslaved themselves. So uh, I've been well, working with some people who have been re- reconstructing their family history as a basis of that, too. All right. Well, kind of help us, give us a, um, a idea of the arc of time. Let's say from 1800s to 1945, when the interview took place, help us understand what was going on uh, in Puerto Rico and other places uh, that would have an impact on uh, slavery. Sure. So if we think about it, it's really not that long ago. Um, and I think one of the things that we could we could look at that spanned a lot of profound shifts is that, you know, start with the uprising in Saint-Domingue, uh, which is 1794 to about 1804. And with that uprising, a lot of the enslavers who had plantations were forced to leave, and uh, they wound up going across the Caribbean and selling different places from going to New Orleans and Baltimore and then finally settling in, in, in Puerto Rico. And that's kind of what happened with the La Sage family uh, from uh, who left their plantations and apparently had some records to continue their, their business. Uh, so two brothers arrived in, in, in Puerto Rico at the, in the 1800s. Uh, and that's when that's kind of the beginning of a, of a new phase in, uh, in plantation economy because Puerto Rico is shifting from kind of like a military outpost with, with some, some crops and some, uh, uh, some plantations, but really moving into sugar and coffee during the 19th century. So, um, and during that time, plantations were were progressed, started to get smaller, and that really started to grow over the course of, after the 1850s. They started to get even larger. Um, in 1870, we have uh, 1872. We have emancipation. The process of emancipation started in 1868. Where it was a uh, there was an inventory began on the enslaved people in Puerto Rico, and uh, and then that that continues through the 1870s, and it really doesn't end until about 1886, and then you have the civil registration, the Registro Civil, which is uh, probably the best source for people's lives after after 1885 begins. You have the end of the slave trade in Puerto Rico and Cuba in 1886 also. And then just 30 years later, you have like the Spanish-American War and the rise of sugar on the island. It really becomes more of a corporate entity. Corporations come in from the United States and they start buying up and expanding the sugar plantations on the island. There is some coffee, but it's, it's, it's much less. It's really kind of devoted to a monoculture. And then in 19, you know, we have the Spanish-American War in 1898, and then after that, 1917, Puerto Ricans are granted uh, United States citizenship, although it can be argued it's a second-class citizenship, but they're granted citizenship, and that gives mobility for a lot of, a lot of people. And then by 1945, you have, you know, you have, well, let me just say in 1918, you have a lot of, a lot of Puerto Ricans who served in the First World War which is an argument for why we got citizenship in 1917. And then in the Second World War, at the end of the Second World War, is when Diaz Soler winds up going to Mocha and interviews Leoncia and her daughter, Juana. You're right. When you listen to this arc of life, you know, it, 
Mm-hmm. It really has some profound shifts, but it really wasn't that far away. Uh, when you just said, you know, emancipation was 1872, but it really wasn't uh, the end of slavery uh, until 1886. So it's just right. helping us get a, you know, get the context of what's going on here, and the fact that the interview was possible. And she was 112 years old. So, I mean, I can imagine the information that was shared. Well, tell us, I understand that you have a goal, uh, a project. And tell us about this project. What are you trying to do? Um, I'm trying to think about her in terms of a legacy. What does this testament mean for us and for, you know, and to hear this voice coming to speak to this experience, you know, it's, I think it's really an important moment uh, because it's, we don't have other, other people's voices, but we may have fragments of that from people's family histories. And I really encourage people that if anybody has any little bit of this experience in their family to definitely interview your elders and write whatever it is down, however little it might be. Uh, mm-hmm. You never know when this starts, all this stuff starts to come again, start to come together. Um, the other thing about it is that very much like people in the American South, um, they had to navigate a lot of legal constraints. So even though she was a woman and she had her daughter, I mean, she still had to support herself. And what, uh, what she and a lot of women like her did was to move to, they would move away from the plantation. Some people even left the immediate vicinity of where they were enslaved, which is completely understandable. But what a lot of people did was then move into town and then work in the service industry where they would, some of it is doing the same thing you were doing before. It's your, you know, your lavandera, you're washing clothes or you're cooking for people or you're, or you're taking care of children. But the difference is that the time is on your, is in your hands. You know, you have control over, over your, your existence. So all of that, that kind of local networking is really kind of very interesting to me because when, a lot of times when a history of a town is written, these are not the people who are talked about. These are not the people, right. but this labor is the labor that keeps things going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so then how do you get people uh, in the community to, first of all, acknowledge uh, that enslavement was in that community and then how do you get them to start sharing what they have heard? Um, I try to do that with groups on Facebook also and, and, and try to do that with the, um, I have a Sociedad Ancestros Mocanos and I have another group on the history of, and genealogy of slavery in Puerto Rico and um, trying to get people to realize that this could be parts of what their history is. Um, and I don't think that anybody necessarily negates it, but um, there are, and I'm not sure exactly what the conditions are right now. I know that there's a lot of interest in it, and there's a lot of people who are who are involved in tracing their their family. With the Lasaja, for example, that's a, you, the, he was one of the largest, that family was one of the largest slave owners in, uh, in Mocha. And as mm-hmm. one of the largest enslavers, what would happen is a lot of people would take the surname and it would be almost like an identification where people would know that that's, 
you know, either by kin or by location, they would know that there's a connection there by the surname. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's that. And um, there are a lot of people in the Saja family who are working on their family history now and working on these, um, uh, these different, these kind of different branching family trees that are, that are, um, that are connected in one way or another to this, to this former plantation. For instance, I don't have uh, Leonceo's mother's name. I don't know who that was. I'm hoping I might find her sedula because it would say it would it would probably state on there who who she who her mother was um, and fill in the details that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a lot. But, I mean, there's, know, there's yeah. there's a lot of little bits to bring together. Sure, this. sure. So why does the legacy of Leoncia uh, and her daughter matter? I think it matters because we are, you know, we're also dealing, so the, the extant slave narratives, there are two that come out of Cuba. Uh, one is by Manzano, uh, and it's a very poetic account by man, but more often than not, you don't really hear women's voices too much in terms mm-hmm. of either the Caribbean or the South America. So I think it's a really kind of a rare thing, but the real importance is in its, its, in its, its view of its resistance and its uh, stance on, on surviving, you know, and, and, and claiming, mm-hmm. a, claiming a, a place in society. I get it. So what are some of your, your future plans, and what do you want people to, if they could be of assistance, to, to help you um, with what you're doing? I'm really, um, I, I think that community-level research is something that's really starting to kind of take off. And, mm-hmm. um, and I have a lot of that. Uh, my experience with Black Trojan has been amazing uh, and, and taught me a lot about different different aspects and different approaches and different ways to kind of get to recording experiences. Um, and looking at like Nika, Nika Smith's um, Trash 250 project, you know, that reconstructs the passive ancestors sold across different states, uh, you know, this stuff can't be done alone. Uh, right. So I would like to see a kind of separate, database for Puerto Rico with all of the information that we can possibly collect on enslaved ancestors. I would love to see something like that develop. Too often what happens is that it gets lumped in with Cuba and Cuba is so, in my mind, kind of a really distinct experience uh, mm-hmm. than Puerto Rico because of mm-hmm. the concentration of people and the extremes, the extremes that were kind of constant there. Uh, there were extremes in Puerto Rico too, but the numbers are different. And you also have a large population of people that don't always accept that they are people of color, you know, that, that, that they do have African ancestry, that they do have this as part of their existence. I mean, there's a whole argument around ident- identifying, uh, I call it Afro-Indigenous ancestry because you can't separate that history from the beginning. We have helped each other escape um, escape the powers that be who, who attempt to um, who attempt to exploit people. So um, I think it's very complex. It's complex. And what I'm seeing also in this 1870 uh, sedulous, I'm seeing that, you know, people are way more mixed than what people have ever anticipated, you know, mm-hmm. when you go through it. This is really not a black and white story at all. 
you know, definitely there's, you know, colorism can, can definitely affect things and stop things or, or uh, for some people make it like a border, but that's, that's kind of like, I think that's changing. I think now people are more open to this history and exploring it more. And so how can people uh, get in contact with you? And also tell us about your Latino Genealogy and Beyond uh, uh, page. Okay. My blog is Latino Genealogy and Beyond, and I started it about four years ago. And I've used it to kind of get jump more into depth in episodes of Black Progen that I've uh, worked on. Um, and also to look at different aspects of different moments in, in slavery and history, uh, the history of slavery in Puerto Rico and different locations and different, um, different time periods. So there, I think there's something like 30, 30 something posts now. And what I would like to do now, what I'm working on now is getting that some of those posts into a book. Oh, um, wonderful. Yeah. And, I continue, and, and if anybody's interested in learning how to explore their ancestry or how do you do this, or, or um, I have, or, or trying to figure out how to pull these pieces together to please reach out to me on Facebook or on, through my website or, or you know, email me. It's, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> Well, Ellen, I want to thank you so much for coming on. You have shared a piece of history that perhaps we all have not been aware of, but I look forward to just looking at more of your research and articles that you're writing. I mean, you're kind of the trailblazer to help others learn, and I know that what you have shared with us today uh, is, is, is important. It's insightful. And for everyone else, I want you to remember your ancestors left footprints. And, you know, Ellen was talking about a slave narrative that was written in 1945. Well, look, there are slave narratives out there that perhaps we all need to look at and also need to look at primary sources, some of which Ellen said she may have some access problems to. But... What I want everyone to know is that you can tune in, you can contact Ellen, find out more about her project, and let's just keep this going. Okay, everyone? And, Ellen, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. So this is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I look forward to all of you joining me next week. Bye-bye, Ellen. Thanks, Bernice. Thanks so much.
With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 